What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. Adam, now I done told you my life of crime is over. However, you did make breakfast this morning. Even burned the bacon like I like and you ate. I also saw you have some sort of robbery to-do list. I know this attempt to be organized is a big step for you, so go. Adam Driver coming around to Channing Tatum's heist plan and that clip from the new NASCAR set, Logan Lucky. The film is also a return to a life of crime for Ocean's Trilogy director Steven Soderbergh, his first theatrical release since going into pseudo-retirement following 2013's Side Effects. Our review of Logan Lucky and our fall movie preview. Charlotte Motor Speedway. Ahead on Film Spotting. We say farewell to summer just a little early this week with our fall movie preview. That preview in the form of our top five questions about the fall movie season as usual. A lot of good titles on the horizon from some very good, very established directors. Spoiler alert, Todd Haynes has a movie coming out. Not not going to appear among my top five questions, Yeah, Josh. probably not mine either, but okay. certainly a movie I'm looking forward to, Wonderstruck. Absolutely. We'll also take a look back at questions we posed earlier in the year as we looked ahead to this year in movies. But first, Adams never met a Steven Soderbergh film that he didn't like. Not true. Think, no, they're not true. He didn't like one, maybe. Okay. Should the director have quit while he was ahead, though, or does Logan Lucky mark a welcome comeback? Jimmy, I'm just going to say it. I got to let you go. You were just fired. I was let go for liability reasons involving insurance. The one armed bartender. <laughs> you need to show a little respect. Charlotte Motor Speedway. I know how they move the money. The only guy who knows anything about blowing up real bank vaults is Joe Bang. I am incarcerated. Yeah, we got a plan to get you out. Indulge me, if you will, Adam, in a little Michael Jordan talk. Okay. The Chicago Bulls great notoriously had some difficulty saying goodbye to the game. Although he retired from the Bulls before the 93-94 season, no one quite believed it. And indeed, he was back by 1995 went on to win three more NBA championships. He then retired again and went on to become part owner and an executive with the Washington Wizards. So far, I love equating Soderbergh to Michael Jordan. I love where you're going with Uh this. We'll see. I'm on board. Takes a turn here. (laughs) He then came back in uniform soon after with the Wizards. This was for the 2001 season, which, well, the less discussed, the better. I'm sure, Adam, you remember the Kwame Brown experiment. I do bring all of this up because here we are in 2017 reviewing a movie directed by Steven Soderbergh, who has had a similarly fitful retirement plan. After 2013's Side Effects, which we split on I on love. episode 433, mm-hmm. so if you want a good argument, go look at that one. After Side Effects, Soderbergh said he was retiring from feature filmmaking. He later described his decision as a sabbatical and went on to be involved in various television projects. No one really believed he was through with the movies, and sure enough, we now have Logan Lucky, in which Soderbergh repertory player Channing Tatum plays a divorced dad, desperate for cash, who organizes a heist at the Charlotte Motor Speedway during a race. 
His accomplices include his hairstylist sister, played by Riley Keough, his one-armed Iraq War veteran brother, played by Adam Driver, a notorious and currently incarcerated safecracker, this is Daniel Craig, and the safecracker's dim-witted layabout brothers, played by Brian Gleason and Jack Quaid. Logan Lucky took the best line for itself to describe itself. Ocean's 7-Eleven. Yeah, it's actually in the movie. (laughs) What should we make of Soderbergh's working-class riff on his Vegas heist films, Adam? Is Logan Lucky the equivalent of Michael Jordan coming back to join Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, and the rest of the gang on the Bulls? Or are we getting the Michael Jordan, Kwame Brown, Washington Wizards here? It's a great question because you've gone with such extremes. I've got a lot of wiggle room there, Josh. There's a very sizable gap, I'd say, between arguably the best ever and borderline disaster, which is the paradigm you set up there. Of course, I do kind of reject the premise of your setup anyway, because there's really no reason to be talking about this movie as a comeback and trying to add that additional importance to it. I understand that everyone is doing it, but it doesn't have to be Citizen Kane or even out of sight to justify its existence. It's just another Soderbergh movie. And on that spectrum of his absolute best and worst, and yes, Josh, there are a few maybe three or four, I actually deem not that worthy. I'd say this belongs somewhere in the upper half. I think I have it on my ranking right now on Letterboxd at 12, and I might actually be underrating it a little bit. The thing that I was really curious about going into this movie was, what would Soderbergh's hook be? What would the experiment be here beyond the distribution model, which we won't go into here and apparently didn't pay off with its box office results. We'll link to the article the New York Times did about that model and what Soderbergh's trying to do with it. If you want to read that, it'll be in our show notes at filmspotting.net. What would compel him to devote his time and his creative energy to what is essentially just another heist movie? And this is a guy who, of course, gave us the modern template for the heist movie in those three Oceans installments. But we got to remember as well, he made The Underneath early in his career. A robbery movie, Out of Sight, of course, one of my favorites ever. Side effects and the informant, to an extent, fall into that category as well. So I'm thinking of Soderbergh as the king of what if we tried that? And you could mention almost any of his movies and immediately point to what that is. And what that is here for me in Logan Lucky is definitely more subtle than what he's doing in the girlfriend experience or bubble or the good German. And even did you look at the next movie he is making? I think it's actually in post-production right now. It's called Unsane and it's shot on an iPhone and in secret. So I presume it's going to feel a lot like Bowfinger. (laughs) Certainly one of his micro budget, more intellectual efforts. It sounds like. Right. So what, what did occur to me pretty early into this film, the hook here I thought was Soderbergh making a heist movie that doesn't move at all like a heist movie. Take all the slickness out of it, the jaunty music, the quick, clever edits, the suspense even. Most of the time, and this applies to Ocean's Eleven, we know the plan, or at least most of the details, and it's really a matter of the criminals executing it. We're always kind of one step ahead. We know when they make a misstep, we feel that pressure, want to see how they're going to get out of it. Here we know almost nothing about how they're actually going to try to pull off this heist at the NASCAR race. So we're just along for the ride. And the ride moves at precisely the pace of its characters. Channing Tatum plays Jimmy, the one who comes up with the idea. If you think about him in this movie, Josh, when does he ever really raise his voice, get agitated? Even when he gets into a bar fight, he just gets up and throws a punch, but he doesn't actually ever yell or really lose his cool. When he loses his job, he says... 
basically, I didn't even do anything wrong. And that's kind of it. That's the extent of his outrage. He just gets up and, and walks away and leaves the job. I think there are shades of that kind of calm as well, if you will, in Adam Driver's character. But the primary characters in this film all have or all exhibit an understanding and acceptance of how life is and that it's not always fair. It never is going to be fair, really. So there's no sense in running around like a chicken with your head cut off. You just deal with it. And you compare that to something like Ocean's Eleven, where it just hums along. That movie never slows down. And Logan Lucky is full of pauses and space. It's it's basically the the heist movie hustle re-envisioned as Southern Stroll. And I found that intriguing. That would be a good defense of Logan Lucky. And I like the film overall. I did enjoy it. I would rank it maybe not in the upper tier of his, but definitely in the ones that that I've appreciated. I don't know how much this hook you're talking about is intentional, though. And I'm scrambling as you were talking. There is a movie that I haven't been able to come up with that does that much more intentionally and and maybe it'll come to me as we're talking here there, there's it's a recent film where you can tell it means to be an anti-heist picture i think what soderbergh for me what the movie is trying to do and plays into what you're describing mm-hmm. which is true it's there the movie's different pace and and the lack of snappy editing or even the lack of dazzling cinematography i think that has to do with what i found to be the hook here is that this is another working class picture he's making with channing tatum that's for sure in as the well. vein of magic mike mm-hmm. which also is an entertainment on many levels and certainly the dance sequences in magic mike are thrilling and entertaining but as we talked about in our review this was really about a working class guy trying to make it on his own mm-hmm. trying to start his own business and the difficulties he faces in doing that so it's a bit of a story about economic desperation uh-huh. um and, and this is as well this is as well and what i liked about it quite a bit is the way it's the inverse of oceans 11 in the characters it's telling, the place it's set, the stakes uh-huh. of the robbery. Uh, and I think some of that has to do with what I'll describe as the movie's lack of verve. I'm not convinced that's entirely the reason why this movie goes lifeless for a hmm. fair amount of time. Um, there, There's just something that is missing. And if I say something like snazzy or pizzazz, right. that's not that I don't I didn't want it to look like Ocean's Eleven. Totally get like we're flipping that script. And mm-hmm. I liked that about it. But it's still, you know, you say the heist itself didn't have a lot of energy to it, but it actually does. Like once once they I think it's because we care job, about the characters, but they all the the scenes speed up a little bit more. There is music that accompanies. Not it, much. It may though. not be the sort of jaunty music yeah. we might be expecting, it's still pretty methodical. but it gets that sort of treatment. There's comedy in those scenes. So so I don't think this is trying to be. And again, if I could think of that title, I mean, it's not, you know. La Samurai is not what I'm I'm thinking of, sure. but but it's that sort of like really drain the mm-hmm. tension out of these scenes and let us sit in scenes. It's not no, that it's intentional. Not. You're right. So there's there's something missing here that I don't think does that means the tempo me of this isn't intentional though. Intentionally meant to be a contrast to something like Ocean's Eleven or Out of Sight. I, I would say that the milieu and the characters are intentional. The tempo. Um, I, I think this could have been notched up well it's not in like a he different degree. how to notch exactly. it up i think he clearly exactly. made a choice that's, not to that's what's confusing about yeah. it is because it does hit that gear in certain scenes and then kind of uh just 
pivots back and slows way down in others where where you do wonder there, there's something does, that does seem to be lacking. I think for uh, me, Josh, if it wasn't a case where I could directly tie that speed back to the way the characters themselves move and act, then I probably wouldn't have actually dialed into it at all or enjoyed it or saw it as a worthwhile experiment. But I felt that connection pretty quickly in this film. The one place where I do like that it works well for me is in Channing Tatum's lead performance as Jimmy. I thought he was just great, by far the best performance, maybe shortly followed by Riley Keough. Mm -hmm. I think those two are working in a a comic key that's just right for what the film is trying to do. A lot of the supporting characters, while some of them were amusing in the way you say, well, that's an interesting performance choice, Uh, like Adam Driver, for example, it didn't quite match the sort of thing that Tatum and Keel were mannered. doing, which yeah. they were, they're playing, you know, I could have watched him limp around. He's got, this is why he gets laid off at the beginning from the job he's on. He has this workplace injury from a previous job. So they say they can't carry him over on this job. He gets fired and he just kind of limps around. There is a sense of pacing to that. He's not this slick guy trying to pull off not at all. this caper. It's a, he's, he's looking for um, some dumb luck. He's going to force some dumb luck, yeah. you know? And and Tatum has this nonchalance to him, this easygoingness in the work overalls Uh he's always wearing. Uh, Again, making sure that we understand this is a working class picture with those sorts of concerns. And it's just a really understated, still funny in ways Mm -hmm. performance that also manages to hold the screen. The guy's not dull. He's not dim-witted. You follow him. You root for him, even as the scheme gets crazier and crazier. And it's just really strong. And I, yeah. I think Riley Keough is really strong, too, as as his sister. I agree. Uh, a supporting part, crucial to the to the scam. Um, I could Those two, and I like the dynamic of having a sibling trio at the heart of this, too. Mm-hmm. I, it actually took me a second where I was like, wait a minute, is she his new girlfriend? I think I missed their initial meeting. And then once you see that those three are siblings, mm-hmm. I like that dynamic at play. Yeah, I do as well. And not to belabor the tempo argument, but I think this would honestly be the easiest video essay ever. You could take so many different parts from this film, put them right up against side by side, how those similar scenes play out in Ocean's Eleven, and you would see a vast contrast. I think that the the one for me that really stood out is, you know how in Ocean's Eleven, at the end, the heist is over, and then they sort of replay how things went at the end where we get the new information where it's now dawning on Andy Garcia what actually happened. There's a scene just like that here in this movie where we go back to the end of the heist and see new information. But in Ocean's Eleven, it's such a winking, fun kind of moment where as an audience member, you go, aha, okay, that's how it went. Here, it's it's so deliberate that it unfolds in a way that you're almost watching it going, I'm not even sure what the new information is I'm supposed to be learning here. Later, I put it together, no, but no, no. it's Are so you... slow compared to the similar scene in Ocean's No, I, I've got to disagree with that. That's where I found, okay, we're moving here. Things are picking up. And that there's a big it's reveal. It's very slow in its editing. There's a big reveal. No, there's a reveal, but it, there too, is a big reveal, but it's exactly so slow in the in way Ocean's it actually 11. depicts it. Just, well, the, again, the speed I mean, of it, Josh, the speed of it is vastly different, I would argue. It, it may be, I, I didn't count the seconds of the actual cuts, but the whole feel of the scene is this, oh, now we're finding out what happened. See, that's not how I see guy it. Gets, that's not how and, I perceive it at all. It reveals a whole it other level to Tatum's right. character. I think it's really which subtle. Which I don't want to give away. No, I think really it's very subtle. subtle. He's yeah, like, I do. 
I'd, I'd have to there's give a away lot of, something. There's to... a, there, exactly, but there are a lot of little character, little additions that you have to be paying attention to the movie to pick up on. I don't think it's about that kind of winking, oh, look at what they did. Look at how they pulled that off. It's, it's That's much exactly different. what it That's is. That's not how I see it. it. It completely reveals where we think this movie went one way. Just because way. it reveals something, Josh, I agree with you. It reveals it's all new about information. Character. But yeah, it is all about character. Jimmy is it's completely not about, a different character. It's not character. about being snappy which Ocean's Eleven is. It's completely different. It's a different viewing experience. No, that, that's the moment where, let's say, Jimmy is revealed as Danny Ocean. So if anything, mm. those are where the two movies meet. <laughs> there's a lot of convergence, but I would say there's something vastly different there in that movie. But one thing we do agree on, and I'm going to take it even a step further than you because you made the comparison to Magic Mike. I've tried to argue that this isn't just another Soderbergh experiment cinematically, though I think there are some of those elements here. Is there any other reason he's making this movie? Is there something else that he feels compelled to say? Not that he needs to, but I was really struck by some of those socioeconomic and class elements that come through in this movie and have been a key part of so many of his films. The Girlfriend Experience is a major one. Bubble is a major one. Aaron Brockovich as well. But Jimmy, he isn't brilliant, certainly, by any means. And he's definitely not as smart or as quick as Danny Ocean is at any point in this film. But what he really does understand, where he's similar to Danny Ocean is Danny Ocean understands how Vegas works and he understands how people in Vegas think and what drives them. And similarly, Jimmy understands the people and this environment and how they think and what drives them. And he understands how the system works. And the system is not designed for people like him, working class, well-meaning people to get ahead. And he manages to turn that on its head. His plan, whether all of these elements were thought through by him or not, we see that it actually relies on so many people along the way behaving according to exactly who they are who they see themselves as, maybe more specifically, there's a consistency of character. And that really is, I think, in some ways what the whole movie is about. If you think about the fact that it's called Logan Lucky, they're really the unlucky Logans. And he's almost doing this to see if he can he can actually buck the trend and and defy that. But the warden, played by Dwight Yoakam, who shows up for a few minutes in this film, he has a certain phrase he loves to use that I think is very revealing about the way he thinks. The new husband, I'm sorry I didn't look up the actor's name, but who is married to... Katie Holmes's character, who plays the ex-wife of Channing Tatum, he goes and gets the car that Riley Keough precisely wants him to go get at one point because she knows all she has to do is needle him a little bit about his driving and he'll have to prove his manhood. So there are a bunch of examples like that throughout this movie. And you can also add on to it the layer of the way NASCAR has gone completely corporate. There's an argument that happens between two side characters in this film, the driver of a car played by Sebastian Stan and his his boss, his sponsor, basically played by Seth MacFarlane. We can maybe talk more about Seth MacFarlane in a little bit, where the driver has to point out to him, who are they coming to see? They're coming to see me, the guy driving the car, not the guy who owns the race car. There's a subplot with the mobile medical truck, and Catherine Waterston kept her hair from Alien Covenant for mm-hmm. this movie, and their noble efforts, and the Bang brothers even, who are the siblings who get involved, they are the brothers of Daniel Craig's character, they need this reason to commit a crime, which I thought was pretty funny, actually, because they've, they've turned to the Lord, so now they need a more moral or ethical reason to actually do something wrong. All those elements add up to this, as I said, real understanding of this milieu, this understanding of how People think how the system works and how they can use that to their advantage, but also to turn it on its head a little bit and and get a little bit of revenge. 
Yeah, there, there's some of that. I think that works better with some characters than others. And, and we can maybe, <laughs> I can maybe rank how they worked for me. I've already talked about the ones that do work. Uh, I think that in the middle is probably Craig and Driver who are having fun, clearly, possibly doing Southern accents. I'm not the one to say, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, seemed a, a little suspicious that they were doing something completely different. If uh, Driver had decided to start doing Kylo Ren, I don't think he would have stood out anymore. Oh, I disagree. Uh, but they were, you know, amusing for their choices. I, You know, Craig, the problem was, was he supposed to be this lovable rogue or an actual menace? You know, there, there never really was. See, that's was... the thing. I think that you he think wasn't, he's a he menace. Wasn't playing now, that's ball. a really interesting point, though, Josh, because you're right. He's not. I think it's what we as audience members bring to the table. We see him with that icy, those icy blue eyes and that blonde hair, and he's playing a criminal, and he looks so imposing and mean. And then come to find out within 30 seconds, we know that's not who he is at all. Yeah, but it's it's more of a flip-flop between any given scene, which way he's going to play it. and whether I, I didn't feel that way. He's pretty to be, consistent. To be threatening. So <laughs> he's a goof. He never really, really registered for me. I do think there's uh, some problems here. Nothing significant. The movie, you know, kind of makes a mawkish plea to... Um, with a John Denver song to to kind of like apologize for some of the potential <laughs> offensiveness. You mean the most emotional moment I had in a movie theater yeah. all year? Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, honestly. Hook, line, and sinker. Oh, man. Didn't see it coming. Fell for it like crazy. Snuck up on me. Got more the emotional. The Little Miss Sunshine moment. Got huh? more emotional near the end of this film during a song than I have at any other film this year. Okay, well, that I'm, sort of I'm, glad you, credit. I'm glad you had that experience. I think it was playing a little bit of makeup for the brothers, Brian Gleason and Jack Quaid. I like them. I mean, that's... They're great. They're, they didn't make me laugh once, and it's no. completely, you know, hillbilly stereotype. It's easy, not really. Easy stuff. That, I completely think that's a lazy criticism stuff. of their performance how, how and the that, film. It's, just it's lazy humor. No. They're it's at not, a country I don't fair, think it goes very dunking out of you things. You said they didn't make you laugh. That's exactly right. They don't actually, other than that moment where we meet them they don't go very far with that type of humor at they're all absolutely i never to, i never laughed at those guys i never laughed at those making guys you laugh every like laugh time at they them. show up never felt that i thought that was a little bit i mean i'm not I like all the i'm not from that here. area so you know i'm not the one to say i'm offended but i think you could take a little offense at that it's it's where things start to push it's the same alexander Payne, you know different for everybody. There's a push-pull here. When is it affectionate, knowing, and when does it turn into caricaturing? I don't think those two characters worked at all. And I, I, you know, I did find the John Denver scene to be like, really, really, we, we, you know, we like your culture and, and we want to honor it here. So <laughs> you mean Steven Soderbergh, the guy from New Orleans, needed bit. to to play backup? Well, this is this is West Virginia, <laughs> yeah, the and, South. Yeah, they're both so. considered the Deep South. Josh, I think he has a right to play whatever cards he wants. I'm just saying how it played for me was uh, a little bit started to cross that line. So I don't think that that they work. And and this isn't offensive, but the Seth MacFarlane, and it's not that big a part of the movie. But I right. don't think that character works. No, at all. it this doesn't. British NASCAR owner. I thought it was Mike Myers for probably the first half. I movie. did too. I mean, first I thought it was Seth MacFarlane, then I thought it was Mike Myers, then I went back yeah, to Yeah, I didn't know MacFarlane was in so, the movie. So. Actually, I don't want to obviously get into the end of this film, but another character shows up, another actress shows up who I didn't expect to see in the movie. And I would say she, she oh, being Hilary Swank, also gives the only other, for me, truly oddball, completely not fitting in with everyone else performance in this movie, her and Seth MacFarlane. It's like she is literally trying to imitate not not capture his essence, but imitate Clint Eastwood is in this movie. That's that what it felt somebody. like to me. And that makes sense. Here's yeah. the only thing I can say about it for me, because again, I think the other performances work. I think some are broader than others, like Tatum and Keo, but that grew on me pretty quickly. I like kind of the boldness of those choices. But 
they stand out so much. And the only thing I could think of is they are the two outsiders in this film. Maybe he pushed it too far, but they're the two true outsiders in this movie. And so it sort of makes sense that if he was going to really push it with them and Soderbergh would say, you know what? Just do whatever you want to do. Yeah. You know what? Go for like it. Chew the got, scenery. I feel like everyone got that free reign. Okay. Um, and it just worked. You know, for them, it was it was near disastrous, whereas like with Driver and Craig, it was kind of amusing. I guess maybe I can describe some of the reservations I had a, a little bit of a different way. And, and again, overall, I like the film. So I have to keep saying that so this doesn't turn into one of those... <laughs> Josh hated Logan Lucky when he actually gave it a positive review. Uh, but, you know, early on, what does Tatum say to to his daughter, who who I think is quite good, young she actress, uh, played by uh, Farrah McKenzie? Uh, they're listening to another John Denver song, mm-hmm. I think, and he's telling her a story about it, and she asks him if that's why he likes the song. And, and he says, I like the song because of the song. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to where we started. Like, why make this? Like, Soderbergh doesn't have to have in existential slash intellectual reason to make no. this, right? I don't know, Out of Sight, which might be my favorite movie of his, I'd have to Mine revisit too. it to dig into what else yeah. might be there. I've never thought of it, but though. There's me, some class stuff, a little bit. Is. And but, I'm sure there is. You yeah. know, brilliant guy. Of mm-hmm. course he's got this stuff going on. But that's not what immediately comes to mind. No. Similarly, I, d- I don't need all of that for Logan Lucky as well. But I wish I liked the song. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit more. I I wish I had either clued in or read the stuff you're reading in a way that Mm -hmm. I could have appreciated a little bit more or more of it had what I found in that reveal montage had or more of it had what I found in the actual heist itself. There's just a lot of lulls and valleys, not bad cinematography, not bad editing. Like you said, Soderbergh does both of those things, clearly a master Mm -hmm. at them. It's it's functional. It's fine. But I didn't find... <laughs> you know what I mean? It Put did, that on the poster, I Stephen. I just didn't find that this thing moved in a way uh-huh. that certain parts of it We're did back to moving. Yeah. consistently. I, 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 I get that. And I'm, I'm just arguing that those lulls were the perfect tempo for this song for me. Logan Lucky is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Please do leave a voicemail as well. You have that option. 312-264-0744. Or you can send us an MP3 file, feedback at filmspotting.net, but you have to do it in your most condescending Southern accent. We're going to keep the cars on the track for Massacre Theater when we come back. Little hint there. Then cruise into our fall movie preview. Stay with us. The heat was hanging low on a dead end evening. She was a tightrope walker on the dotted yellow lines. The magic goes on with the mica in her eyes. Within a series of looks, we'll be tangled till the end. When we ride Now listen, Bert. Listen carefully. I have a gun at my head. If a man who identifies himself as the king 
cards upside down. The late Jerry Lewis, kidnapped and reading from Robert De Niro's cue cards in Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy, a movie that we thought about a week ago, Josh, was definitely a movie from 1982. And as we are set to talk about Blade Runner next week on the show and share our top five films of 1982, Michael Phillips, who we're going to hear about a little more in a moment, is going to stop by and help us with that one. We were all set to include it. You actually need to see The King of Comedy. So it was on your homework list. For me, it was in my top five. And then a listener on Twitter had to point out to us that it says that on IMDb, but really thought of as a 1983 film. So we'll we'll have to get to that list at a later date, and we can talk a little bit more about that film and talk about Jerry Lewis's performance. Though the King of Comedy has made top fives, at least one for me before, and Lewis and his performance and the melancholy he brings to that role that seems so close to who he probably was in real life, or at least how we probably see him when he's not on stage and think he might really be. It's so good. It's really one of the strengths of the film. Yeah, I think it was February of 83 when The King of Comedy actually got a theatrical release. So we won't be considering that. And that would have been, sadly, not only my first time seeing that film, but really my first encounter with Lewis. I mean, aside from things here and there on television when I was a kid, this is a huge blind spot to me. And, And part of it is just personal taste. I mean, I think by the time we had come to movies as well, his reputation, and this is in- Michael's appreciation. Mm -hmm. This would have been 80s, 90s, maybe not a high point, one of those high points of his career. So not someone that struck me then as important, certainly became aware of his legacy, but also seemed like one of those brands of humor that was an acquired taste if it wasn't your immediate natural taste. Mm -hmm. Certainly always meant to go back and see whether or not that perception was true. And now, sadly, this is probably a good reason as any to go ahead and do that at some point soon here. Yeah, he passed away over this past weekend. He was 91 years old. And we've mentioned Michael Phillips wrote a great appreciation of him in the Chicago Tribune and had the opportunity to interview him three different times, and he talks about a memorably testy encounter with him in that article. I found that very illuminating, reading Michael's piece, because he did grow up with Lewis more than we did, certainly, Mm -hmm. has seen a lot more of his films, does say that The Nutty Professor is really the pinnacle of his work. That's the conventional wisdom. It's wisdom that Michael shares, and I think the piece Michael wrote succeeded on the basic level of making me feel like I understood who Jerry Lewis was a lot more as a person, but mainly as a performer, and maybe more importantly, it did make me want to really go out and see The Nutty Professor. Yeah, for sure. And a couple of great anecdotes Michael shares in that as well, including one when he ran into him at an L.A. deli. I think the phrase Michael used, atomically gifted Mm -hmm. for Lewis. It's just there. It's on that level for him. Really a great phrase. Next week, as I said, Michael will join us on the show to probably mock us for our lack of knowledge and appreciation for Jerry Lewis. And we will get to that sacred cow discussion of Blade Runner and share our top five films of 82. If you have any films that you want to make sure that we do see or that we don't overlook for our list, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Our website is also where we post our bi-weekly poll questions and anticipating this 82 episode we've got an 82 death match for you we pitted blade runner against another sci-fi classic steven spielberg's et the extraterrestrial my reaction when sam suggested this poll i think i said this last week this isn't a death match et is just going to crush blade runner so you know, maybe we could come up with a better question. My message to Sam the day after we posted the poll question, okay, that's it. I'm done predicting polls. 
Poor E.T.? Is e. it like over? E.T. is going in the fire. No. At the rate, no. At the rate we're going. Film spotting listeners are choosing wait, wait. Deckard. They're choosing to save Rutger Hauer, but E.T. is gone forever. We haven't watched it yet in my house. We better get to that before yeah. it gets burned. <laughs> you won't have another shot, Josh. So you can blame film spotting listeners for that. Or you can try to resuscitate E.T. just like it happens in the movie, Josh. I do, I do need to vote yet. So okay. can my one vote be amplified? Nope. nope. Don't even bother. Filmspotting.net is where you can choose to bother and vote in that poll. And you may even leave us a comment. We may share it on the show. If you do, please let us know where you're listening from. In the comments, you can possibly choose to call me out for being wrong about three consecutive poll questions. Charlize besting Keanu Reeves in that death match of beautiful people we've now come to appreciate more as actors. Clooney over Channing Tatum and Matt Damon as the best performer in the Steven Soderbergh repertory players. And now it looks like Blade Runner. So I really am not predicting these polls anymore. I quit. You're going to ask Sam to set up a really easy one next time, aren't you? I don't know what really easy is anymore. (laughs) Let's get on to a quick note about our new Argentine cinema marathon already in your podcast feed. If you are a podcast subscriber, you have heard the second conversation in our marathon, we talked about Alejo Mowishansky's 2009 film Castro. The plot, four characters looking for a man called Castro, but we don't know why. Based on that and knowing, just briefly, I saw somewhere that it was based on a Samuel Beckett novella. I thought, yeah, I oh, it's going to be like Waiting for Godot where we never meet Castro. Well, that's not the case. We meet Castro early on. So it's still a film with a lot of surprises, and we discussed that in some detail on that separate podcast. So if you want to follow along with the marathon, We hope you will. You can find that show in Apple Podcasts, or you can go straight to filmspotting.net and click on Marathons. Listen there and also hear our conversation about Extraordinary Stories, a movie that we both really appreciated. That was the debut film in the marathon, and you can see the rest of the lineup. And on Mubi, which is our presenter for this marathon, you can see Castro, and you can also see Extraordinary Stories. Both of those are currently playing on Mubi, cult classic independent films from around the world. Everyday Movies experts introduce you to a film they love, and you have a whole month to watch it. So there's always 30 extraordinary films for you to enjoy. Listeners of Film Spotting, you can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. There's Another film playing with a connection to our Argentine marathon. It's Mawishansky's follow-up to Castro, 2013's The Parrot and the Swan. This is set in the world of dance, a film filled with surprises, wittiness, and a cheerfully off-kilter filmmaking approach willing to take risks and make jokes, according to Mubi's notes. Also available and also part of Mubi's Argentine series is Ostende. This is from 2011. It is Laura Citarea's debut film. Mubi says it's both a delightfully observational comedy and a minimalistic detective story of Hitchcockian undertones. Yeah, both sound really intriguing. We hope, as we said, that you're following along with our marathon, that you're checking out some of these films, some of these additional films, a little homework, if you will, to supplement our marathon over at Mubi. Great time to be part of Mubi's free trial. Get those 30 days free by going to Mubi.com slash film spotting. Up next for us in the marathon, La Cienega from director Lucretia Martel. Martel was one of our big reasons for doing this marathon. And this film is available on a number of different platforms. As I mentioned, if you want to find out where you can see it and see the other titles in the marathon, just go to filmspotting.net slash marathons. Let's get now to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, Josh and I massacred, and boy did we ever, this scene. How could a car like you quit at the top of your game? 
You think I quit? Right. Your big rack in 54. They quit on me. When I finally got put together, I went back expecting a big welcome. You know what they said? Your history moved right on to the next bookie standing in line. There was a lot left in me. I never got a chance to show them. I keep that to remind me never to go back. I just never expected that that world would, would find me here. You have the late, great Paul Newman there with Owen Wilson in Pixar's Cars from 2006, written by John Lasseter and seven others. Only seven. Directed by Lasseter with Joe Ramft. That Massacre was part of a show that also included our review of Catherine Bigelow's Detroit and our top five of 1967. Do you see the connections? Oh, man. There are a lot of them, Josh. Our listeners certainly saw connections we never dreamed of, as they usually do. Scott Ferguson in New Albany, Indiana, nails it, having a Lightning McQueen-obsessed two-year-old made solving this massacre theater relatively easy. I hear this scene from Disney Pixar's Cars quite often when cruising in our minivan. The tie-in is Paul Newman, who appeared in your top five films of 1967 list for Cool Hand Luke and Ombre. He voiced the character of Doc Hudson in this scene, although I never realized that Doc was drunk, as Josh's performance seemed to suggest. And Adam's impersonation of Owen Wilson by way of Peter Lorre for Lightning McQueen, not inaccurate, was hilarious. Wow. How can a guy like you quit at the top of your game? You think I quit? Thanks for throwing a film in there. Scott continues, for those of us with small children who watch a handful of movies on a loop, and thanks for the great show, as always. Peter Lorre is close. Yes. I I was thinking, now, mind you, I've never heard Mr. Monopoly speak. (laughs) But if he did, wow, that was it Mr. Was, Monopoly. It was so transcendent. You had to you had to imagine a voice. Someone who doesn't even really exist. I don't know if my acting then was was very good, Josh. We also heard from Dan Perdue in nearby Wheaton, Illinois. Love this week's rendition of Cars for Massacre Theater. I've seen that movie about 1,500 times with my three-year-old. So I recognized it, even though Josh's Paul Newman sounded like a drunk Clint Eastwood. we got to get the beer out of the studio, apparently. I, I don't think I had beer that night. And Adam Owen Wilson somehow sounded like Danny DeVito's Penguin from Batman Returns. I loved every second of it. Thanks for all the great shows and great massacres. So it hit me when I read that, that he's not entirely wrong, because I was sort of channeling John Stewart doing Dick Cheney, who sounds a bit like the penguin. (laughs) (laughs) And you're also drooling black goo. Just like Dick Cheney does, right? Exactly. Kevin Harrison, Moore Park, California, said, I couldn't tell if that was Owen Wilson, Sammy Davis Jr., that's great, or a talking cat. Maybe I was playing Sammy Davis Jr. as a talking cat. Did you ever think of that, Kevin? Right. Your big rack in 54. Ryan Finley from Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Here's where I'd insert a witty line about Adam's performance, but I haven't had time to talk to my therapist. I'm still processing, as we all are, Ryan. Andre Cadeau in Charlottesville, Virginia. You two really outdid yourselves this week. Hilarious and exceptionally terrible, and I mean both of you. So, imagine James Cagney and Wilford Brimley were given the script to Cars. Cagney is Lightning McQueen and Brimley is Doc Hudson. They read the lines that you chose. They then slow down the tape to half speed. (laughs) That was Massacre Theater. <laughs> did Sam slow it down? Maybe he I did. I don't know. Maybe he did. Some some uh, monkey business in the post-production, perhaps. <laughs> wow. All right. Jeff Miller in Boston, Massachusetts had a lot of this. other tie-ins here. Detroit, both the title and setting of Catherine Bigelow's latest film, which you discussed on the episode, is a city best known for automobile manufacturing. Newman's Luke Jackson 
is picked up for cutting the heads off of parking meters. Mm-hmm. This is true. I like that deep one. Owen has a brother named Cool Hand, Luke Wilson. <laughs> Why not? All right. Now these others, I, I don't even know if we should read. I love it. This this is profound. It's just <laughs> profound that he, he, he made the effort, Josh. And I think we profound? have to reward that. Yes. Profound is the word. Yes. Okay. Jeff includes some numerical near and far misses. Uh, these are supposedly connections. Owen Wilson was born in 1968. Hey, close. The Cars town of Radiator Springs used to be a stop on Route 66. Six. Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet came out in 1968. Eight. <laughs> a tie-in to your previous Hot Fuzz Massacre. That's right. Owen Wilson's Cars character is an obvious nod to Steve McQueen, the king of cool who notably didn't star in a 1967 movie. movie. But he would famously get behind the wheel of a 1968 Ford Mustang fastback in 1968's Bullet. 68, 68, okay. Yep. McQueen would also race in the 1971 film. You got to bear this one out. With music by Michelle Legrand, notable collaborator with Jacques Demy, including 1967's, 67's Young Girls of Rochefort. There was a notable real-life disaster at the 1955 Le Mans race, which left over 80 dead. This is, of course, one year after the fictional 1954 accident that ended Cars Doc Hudson's career, it's which you referred to. You, no, no. Have you seen that, that Jim Carrey movie, The Number 23 or whatever? That's, I think we just lived, that's Massacre I think we Theater. just lived it. <laughs> I did. shudder to think okay. of all of the things Jeff could have accomplished. Rather than offering up and researching those non-connections. What if if he didn't have to research it? What if it all just came to mind? That would be better. Finally, Ken Smith in St. Catharines, Ontario. I'd like to share a nightmare car story with you. I took my wife and sons to see Cars 2 at the drive-in. End of story. No, that's not true. My entire family fell asleep about 10 minutes into the movie. I couldn't drive away or I would wake them up and also anger the other moviegoers. So I had to watch Cars 2 by myself while everyone else slept soundly for the entire film. Oh, Ken. That sounds rough. That does sound like a nightmare. Josh, you are going to reach into the film spotting hat, and it's kind of moderately brimming, but it could have been so much fuller, Josh, because as it turns out, Sam, our wonderful producer, did decide to take a little bit of an outtake from Massacre Theater and put it at the end of the episode. So if you listen to the podcast and you listened all the way through, and why wouldn't you? You got that little nugget, that little Easter egg of us arguing about my Owen Wilson impression, and he didn't believe it. So I literally said Owen Wilson. You did. And you would have had the answer right there. to stick with to the end. There you That's go. That's the lesson here. Reach in and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Faith Johnson. She's from Austin, Texas. Congratulations, Faith. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. You are that dreamboat guy that never came along. You are the one-night stand that they get to have tonight with you on stage and not get in trouble because you, baby, you made it legal. You are the liberation. Own it. I love it when Sam works in show-appropriate new Massacre Theater drops. We got one there, and we get to this week's Massacre Theater. I'm not sure that we're prepared for it, but we will tell you as we try to mentally get ready for this undertaking it really is going to be an undertaking with sound effects have you planned yeah, your sound no, effect? i'm looking around Josh, at okay, what I got you here. look around while i explain to everyone what they get to win because it's not just the film spotting t-shirt we're actually going to have five winners this week the grand prize winner is going to get that film spotting t-shirt and a blu-ray dvd combo pack of the new movie megan levy it's based on the life of a young marine corporal kate mara whose bond with her military combat dog saved many lives during their deployment in iraq so one grand prize josh and then four other 
Blu-ray DVD combo packs of Megan Levy to give away. We're so generous. Five winners this week. And really, after suffering through this scene, I think that they deserve it. Yes. Now, we will point out it might throw you a little bit if this scene proves to be familiar to you. We think it might be familiar to many of you. The dialogue isn't going to give away the connection to this week's show, but if you do place the scene, you place any of these lines, you will know the connection instantly, I think. It's a pretty obvious one and a good so one. So it might be good to throw folks off a little bit by condensing. This is a three-person scene. Yes. So we're going we to do that. two of the parts into one. Yes. And <laughs> I'm only going to be playing one of those two parts, meaning I'm doing both their lines, yes. but as one of the actors, I'm Correct. not going to try to channel two different no, performers. No, you've got your work cut out for you <laughs> as it is. Exactly. So with that, I will throw in as well that there is at least one time that there's a name that's going to be uttered, and I'm going to change that name to make it less obvious. But I think, I think it's important for the cadence of the scene, Josh, that there's a name in there. So I'm going to keep it. I'm going to make something up just on the spot. Can't wait. Okay, here we go. I started off. You're going to give me the action. Are you ready? Because I don't think I am. I'm not. So let's just do it. And action. Buddy, you can walk. what you say? It's all in your head. You sick sons of bitches. I mean, you walk in that door on your two legs, all fat and cocky and looking at me in my chair. And you tell me it's all in my head. I hope that both of you have sons. Handsome, beautiful, articulate sons who are talented and star athletes and they have their legs taken away. I mean, I pray you know that pain and that hurt. Don't you put that evil on me. Don't you put that on us. You are not paralyzed. You want to know what I am? You want to see what my life is? Don't do it. Do you want to see what's going on here? Don't you stick that knife in your leg. And scene. Are you okay? No. Are you okay? That hurt. That hurt. Man. The stabbing. You know why the stabbing was so authentic, though? We got some distortion there on the the board. (laughs) The levels are all out of whack, but we're just going to have to leave it. I I mean, I don't know. Could you duplicate it, Josh? I don't think you can duplicate it. We can't can't redo that scene. Not until I've had surgery. (laughs) If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, September 4th. We will pick the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it on the show in a couple weeks. We do have official Massacre Theater rules over at filmspotting.net if, for some reason, you're curious. And again, five winners. So if you know it, go ahead. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. That actually did hurt. I tried to back off. You you did fine. It was a good scream. Please, come in. Hello. Hello. He's a stranger. We're just going to let him sleep in our house. Hello. Hello. Did you know he had a wife? As if that massacre wasn't unnerving enough, we get that music signaling the latest from Darren Aronofsky. It's called Mother... I think that's how you say it. There's an exclamation point. point. Mother. Well done. (laughs) The cast includes Jennifer Lawrence, Javier Bardem, Ed Harris, and Michelle Pfeiffer. Mother. Actually, that's more more of a question mark. (laughs) Is that how I'm saying it? Mother. 
Okay, that's better. Now you're critiquing my performance? Yeah. Massacre Theater's over, Josh. It's not, it's you're not, not directing anymore. It's not a question. It's so, not whether or not she's mother. She is mother. They're uh, angry about it or upset about it. Mother. Now that's still that's a about, question. It's, yeah, it's kind of still are a question. Why are you always asking questions? I'm a curious guy. <laughs> mother is a film that was on our radar back in January when we did our 2017 movie preview. And before getting to our fall preview, we're going to take a few minutes to see if we have any answers to the questions we posed back in January and back in May at the start of the summer movie season. I did not watch the trailer for Mother, so just real quick digression. I just watched it now. I saw it maybe before Logan Lucky or something else in theaters. And what the hell is going on in that film? Can't tell you. I've avoided it so far. Black Swanish, I hear. I mean... Black Swan on acid or something. Sounds good. Yeah, it's out there. So I can't say I'm that excited for it. And I am a big fan of Aronofsky. What? No. What's the I don't know. I don't know. Pre-trailer or this is a trailer reaction? There's not enough pre-trailer to interest me one way or another, really, in terms of what I heard about it. And yeah, just based on the trailer, it didn't make me want to see it. It didn't. That's all I can say about it. I mean, I guess I want to know what's really going on, but that's about the extent of it. So, Well, Aronofsky, Jennifer Lawrence, I'm in no matter what. That's why I did have this as one of my questions way back at the beginning of the year. It is obviously still unanswered, but I asked which intriguing director-actress pairing will be more fruitful? Mother? No, that was a question too. Mother! It's contagious. Ruben Ostland and Elizabeth Moss with The Square. Which well, we don't know yet. We haven't we don't seen know. it. Mother's opening September 15th. The Square is October 27. Another question of mine that's unanswered is who's going to get the 2017 Comeback Award? Terrence Malick with Song to Song or Duncan Jones with Mute? Now it looks like Mute, not a good sign, getting pushed back to 2018. That's with Paul Rudd and Alexander Skarsgård. It's going to be distributed by Netflix. So, I mean, he's still got a shot. I wasn't high. On Song to Song. That's right. You did see it. We didn't talk about it on the show. I still haven't seen it, but you did and were disappointed. Okay, so I have a couple unanswered questions from my list earlier in the year. What movie will best capture our post-Trump sociopolitical climate? And in January, I mentioned his possibilities, Catherine Bigelow's Detroit and Guillermo del Toro's fantasy, The Shape of Water, which is coming out December 8th. Now, I will point out that when I posed that question... I'm not sure we're going to have an answer to it. We certainly didn't in January. I don't think here in August we have an answer, and we may need a couple years to really put the time frame in perspective. So we'll see. And I am definitely excited about Del Toro's film. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's films that inadvertently capture the climate, right? Right. It's the ones being made now or even more so in the next year or two that I think are going to be more intentional reflections of of this current era. My number two unanswered question going back to January was, which sci-fi flick will mark its second time writer-director as my new favorite? I had Charlie McDowell. His film from this year was The Discovery or Annihilation. Alex Garland, this one, I guess, incomplete. Certainly... Alex Garland has the upper hand, as I was disappointed with the discovery. Still pretty high on McDowell as a filmmaker, but disappointed in that film. And we'll have to wait to really answer it because Annihilation has been moved to February 2018. I also wondered, with all due respect to the fate of The Furious, will The Trip remain the best current movie franchise on the planet, or will that title pass to my beloved Pitch Perfect? Pitch Perfect 3 is coming out around Christmas, December 22nd, but I loved The Trip to Spain and love all three of those movies, so it's going to be tough to supplant that. And number four, I wondered which crime comedy ensemble will be guilty of being the funniest, Logan Lucky, highly praised by me earlier in the show, or three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. The trailer for that movie, the latest from Martin McDonough, with Francis McDormand, Woody Harrelson, Peter Dinklage, and John Hawks, that just broke this week, but I'm trying to avoid 
watching it. It comes out November 10th. Logan Lucky didn't make me laugh a whole lot necessarily. I suppose it does qualify as a comedy, but I'm expecting a lot of big laughs from McDonough based on In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths. So what about the ones that we actually were able to answer, Josh? So I asked, how will a Clint Eastwood Western look through Sofia Coppola's gauzy lens? I'd say pretty good. Made mm-hmm. my top five films of the year so far. I also asked if a ghost story will be this year's boyhood or birth of a nation. I don't think it's garnered quite the critical praise no. as boyhood or caused quite the controversy as birth of a nation. But I've been dismissed the way birth of a nation has. Yeah, or had that. Well, yeah, what a, a rise and then quick fall. Uh, so it hasn't had really the story of either, but I think it's registered pretty strongly mm-hmm. among, you know, a small audience. But most people I've heard from have really liked it. Wouldn't be surprised if it does show up on top 10 lists by the end of the year. I also asked, is there any way that the rebooted Apes franchise goes three for three? And it did, at least in my opinion. Most people have liked War for the Planet of yeah. the Apes, and I did quite a bit. And not just liked it. I'd say most people I've heard or seen talk about it on Twitter or on other podcasts, they love it. They love it even yeah. more than you did, Josh. I think I think a lot of people rank it as the best in the series. I was just so high right from the beginning that, uh, yeah, they're on a pretty even plane for me. So the only question from the top five that I posed back in January, looking at the entire year in cinema that we can't answer is this one, can insert director name here make me care about fantasy? And at the time, I was thinking of The Dark Tower, based on the Gunslinger books, that whole series by Stephen King, which I loved when I read three of them 20 years ago, three of those books. Anyway, the director in this case is Nikolai Arcel. I was highly anticipating that film. And if you do stick around and listen to the hot mic segment that I think Sam will probably throw at the end of this podcast, you'll hear me talk about the fact that I did finally see The Dark Tower, have a couple thoughts on the movie. I didn't hate it nearly as much as everyone else did. I do think it's a disappointment, but not a complete disaster the way I felt most people were talking about it. So it certainly wasn't enough to make me care overall about the fantasy genre, and I'm being admittedly a little too dismissive there. It's just not a genre that overall excites me, though there are definitely examples of films that fit within that genre I enjoy. One of the problems with The Dark Tower is there's really not enough fantasy. There's not enough world building at all. Too much of it takes place in modern-day New York and really doesn't explore the same kind of terrain that The Dark Tower books did. So that's January, our year preview. A lot left to answer, even going into 2018 a little bit. Josh, what about as we look back on the summer? We are sitting here at the end of August, looking back now, sadly, on summer. We can finally weigh in with answers to these questions. How did your queries come out? So I asked if Brad Pitt could carry a comedy thinking about War Machine. We were both fairly down on the movie. He's doing something really strange performance-wise there. I don't know. I guess I'm still hesitant to answer the question because it certainly doesn't work here. But that's a movie where the performance and the rest of the film aren't in sync. I don't know. I'd be willing to give him— That's not the film to prove it. I'd be Yes, I'd be willing to give him another shot at that, but War Machine certainly doesn't prove it. I asked if Bong Joon-ho has gone touchy-feely with Okja based on some early trailers. A little. Uh, there's Well, there's elements of touchy-feeliness mm-hmm. in it, but for me, I had no expectation that the movie would get as dark as it did. So I would say no to that. Also asked how strong are John Boyega's dramatic acting chops. Of course, a 
Uh, I wouldn't say it's certainly not a lead part. I guess a major supporting kind of role lamented in Detroit. Both of us that he didn't get more to do. Yeah, it, it's a strange role, and again, maybe not a fair test. I think there are moments where he certainly shows that that promise is there. Can't wait for the day he gets to really dig into a lead performance. So I also asked which small Sundance film will break out big: Band Aid, Beatriz at Dinner. Ingrid Goes West, or Landline. So all four of these got limited releases. I managed to catch them at Sundance. The last three are still playing in theaters. Beatrice did pretty well, but really it's one that I didn't see at Sundance that's made a lot of money. The Big Sick, $38 million and counting. Yeah, and of course I did talk to the co-writer and star of that movie, Kumail Nanjiani. If you are a fan of The Big Sick and didn't hear that, go to filmspotting.net and click on interviews. And then it turns out we both had questions about the movie It Comes at Night from director Trey Edward Schultz. Would anything in that movie be as disturbing as Cresha uncorking a wine bottle? I asked, will the mysterious forces threatening the family in It Comes at Night be as scary and as fascinating as the natural forces attacking the family in Cresha? I really liked It Comes at Night, but I think less a discredit to that film and more credit to Cresha. No, there really isn't anything as memorably terrifying as some of those moments with Cresha in that film. Yeah, and that's one, I think it came out while we were on vacation, so I still need to catch up with it. My number two was an Okja reference to Pig's Dream of Electric Meat Grinders, a tie-in to the promotional campaign to that film. Not really a question you can answer, more of just me trying to get Okja in there and recommend it, and it turned out Yeah, I thought Okja was a pretty good film, made my top five films of the year so far. My number three goes back to The Big Sick. What aren't Grinnell College grads capable of? The answer, nothing, apparently, because Kumail made a pretty fantastic film. My number four, here's one we don't have an answer to because I still haven't seen the movie. Can director Taylor Sheridan follow-up screenwriter Taylor Sheridan's acclaimed work on Hell or High Water? So he wrote the screenplay for that, Oscar-nominated, I believe. And then Wind River is in theaters right now. We do love Elizabeth Olsen's work. We generally are big fans of Jeremy Renner's work, and I want to see the movie. I'm definitely curious about it. Obviously, that's why it was on my top five earlier in the summer, but haven't had time yet. And my number five was, will the best summer 2017 movie be a summer 1991 movie? Terminator 2 Judgment Day 3D is opening this weekend. So I want to see it. Question. I hate 3D movies, but I want to see it. I think it would be yeah, fun. I mean, another chance to see maybe that on I'll the big take, screen. Maybe I'll take one of the kids to it. That's a really good question, though. Having seen most of the big summer movies, would you rank, I mean, War for the Planet of the Apes? Which maybe I haven't seen yet, so I can't. compete with it? I'm a huge fan of T2, so I don't know if I've seen anything better. Yeah. It may end up being the best, which maybe isn't fair because a lot of people consider it an all-time action movie classic. So we've looked back now at our past previews and how we got our prognostications mostly wrong, it seemed, Josh. We'll probably do that again as we get to the films we think are most promising coming out this fall. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. A spark of light, an empty lighter A flashing face in static heat when midnight appears and goes to the talking Now there's a fight inside these fingers Maybe tonight you'll
dead. You'll be reborn in my image. We need to stop her here and now. To prevent Ragnarok, the end of everything. So they're putting together a team. Like the old days. Surprise! This will be such fun. That was Thor Ragnarok? Ragnarok. No, it's not Ragnarok. <laughs> I know that. Ragnarok. Ragnarok? No, Ragnarok. Ragnarok. That's what we're going to go with, Josh, Mother? for now. <laughs> Mother? <laughs> can I call it Thor? Mother? You can. Thank you. We played a clip from the trailer from Thor Ragnarok because... I do think, Josh, I did not put it on my list. We'll see if it makes yours, Josh. I don't want to spoil anything. But if it was number one, I think that would make a lot of sense. Because really, if I had to boil it down to one question, if you pulled the majority of, let's just say, paint with a broad brush, film spotting listeners, we feel like we know our audience pretty well. What's the one question about the movies coming out this fall that they really are dying to get answered? It's this one. It's one that goes back. It's been discussed ever since we talked about the latest film from Taika Waititi on the show, New Zealand filmmaker. Quirky, I think the word applies to his taste, usually pretty comedic. Not someone who I think any of us would point to and say, yep, you know what? Put him behind the helm of a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. And we're all really curious to see if he'll bring the same sensibility he brought to the hilarious what we do in the shadows and his last film was for the wilder the hunt for the wilder people so will he still bring that will he manage to make this film personal make it feel like a taika waititi film i think that's the question i didn't go with it but that is the question essentially of you might be spoiling one on my list okay well it would be a good choice if that was the case josh we'll get to our top five questions about the fall movie season and if you did hear last show you may recall that i wondered if maybe doing some kind of Steven Soderbergh retrospective would have made more sense. And we did wonder aloud, I think, has that already been done here on Film Spotting? Guess what? It has. Yes. Back in 2011, September 2011, episode 364. You were not the co-host Before at the time. time. So, Which is clearly why I didn't remember right, it. And because I remember every single exactly. top five we've ever done. Right. He's made a lot of films since 2011, or at least a handful, and we don't have your perspective, though it's clearly very jaded when it comes to the wonder of Steven Soderbergh, so I'm not sure I want your top five. I do not bow down and kneel appropriately. You don't. So that may happen at a later date. For now, we will stick with our fall movie preview. If you want to go back and see what I picked, what former co-host Maddie Robinson picked for our top five Steven Soderbergh scenes, that list is available at our new website, filmspotting.net. Just click on lists. So questions you have that aren't related to Taika Waititi or Thor or anything that has to do with Marvel, Josh, your number five. My number five, will Denzel Washington go full Nightcrawler in Roman Israel Esquire? Hmm. This is writer-director Dan Gilroy's follow-up to The Great Nightcrawler from 2014 that featured Jake Gyllenhaal as this unscrupulous and unstable crime photographer, a, a movie we both liked quite a bit. Here, Washington plays the title character who's described on IMDb as a driven, idealistic defense attorney who, through a tumultuous series of events, finds himself in a crisis that leads to extreme action. So we all know Denzel can do nobility, but it's his conflicted characters, thinking of, I don't, you know, Flight or Last Year's Fences. I think those are the most interesting. Those are the ones that really let him get to work. Now, given Gilroy's track record, that is hopefully what we'll get here. I really hadn't heard of this film till I got the 
wonderful document from our production assistant, Jeremy Wellhausen, that saved me a ton of time. Yeah, me too. Uh, this was the first I heard of it, and I really like this pairing of yep. director and star. I think there's a lot of potential here. So Roman Israel Esquire opens November 3. Great pick. When you did initially envision this top five, you wondered if maybe we could have some more other people who aren't us do all the heavy lifting yes, for us, exactly. not just Jeremy, but our listeners, they could submit questions and we would answer them or try to answer them on the show rather than us come up with the questions as we usually do. And we're going to do that a little bit. I think you ended up picking a couple that came yeah, in. Yeah, I did use a few. I have two on my list as well. I think both of these came in via your Facebook page. The first one comes from Fern Josephs, who asks, will Suburbicon live up to the expectations its artistic dream team inspires. So at this point, when I saw that, I'd never even heard of this movie. So I Google, I start getting some basic info about it, and I see the synopsis. A home invasion rattles a quiet family town. Vague, but ominous. Seems intriguing. Then I see the director. It's George Clooney, who has made Confessions of a Dangerous Mind and Good Night and Good Luck, which I like but don't love. I really dislike Ides of March, never bothered to see Monuments Men or Leatherhead. So he's got this combination of historical and political movies and some comedies. And I thought, this is going to be his first thriller. This could be really intriguing. And then I see a photo, and it's Matt Damon at a desk, it looks like. He's all bruised and battered, and he's really angry. And this is overweight character actor Matt Damon, by the way. <laughs> and then I think, okay, that clinches it. This is going to be really dark and really intense. I can't wait to see it. And then I see who it's written by. The Cone Brothers. Joel and Ethan Cohn. And the word comedy keeps popping up. And finally, today, Josh, I watched the trailer, and the music and the sound effects even, and the voiceover, and of course the dialogue and the performances, you realize immediately, yeah, this could actually end up being somewhat dark, like many Coen Brothers films are, mm -hmm. but it's also probably going to be hilarious wacky. at the same time, and wacky and great. And, oh, I haven't mentioned Julianne Moore stars, and this is set in 1959, so she's kind of in Far From Heaven, but funnier mode, and how about Oscar Isaac also showing up as a police detective, I think, who doesn't quite believe the story Matt Damon is giving. So Fern is referring to that dream team of Clooney, the Coen brothers, Matt Damon, Moore, and Oscar Isaac, and it's certainly formidable, and all of that and that sense of tone that I'm trying to wrap my head around makes me really want to see Suburbicon. These animals took everything from us. I have to make decisions like what's best for the family. Any progress on the investigation? A mobster got killed a couple of days ago. I can end the conversation real quick. I'm sorry for his loss. Of life? Yeah, I guess he probably is too. So the encouragement that Clooney can pull off this tone for me, because he's been very uneven as a director. Yes. For some reason, I, I really want to root for him mm -hmm. as a director as well. I like his instincts. The Monuments Men did not really work... Uh, Good Night and Good Luck, I think, was fantastic. But the tone thing, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is a weird little movie mm -hmm. that I absolutely loved and is kind of hard to describe as well in terms of what it's going for, yet what it offers works. So, yeah, yeah I do see, you know, despite Monuments Men, I see some reason to hope. Right. And maybe if there was anybody that could try to imitate, for lack of a better word, the Cone brothers, do their material and direct it. Clooney's worked with them right. enough now. I think he has a real handle on their tone and their style. And you certainly see some characters and faces and individual lines of dialogue that pop up in the trailer. And it feels like a Cone brothers film. And 
I love almost every Coen Brothers film, so I'm good with that. All right. My number four question, simply, is it 1998? Hmm. I'm going to describe a movie for you. Okay. Jackie Chan plays a London businessman whose daughter is killed in a terrorist attack. Pierce Brosnan plays a British official whose investigation gets upended by Chan's pursuit of the terrorists. The director, Martin Campbell. Wow. Who made the Bond film mm-hmm. GoldenEye with Brosnan. What year does it sound like to you? <laughs> yeah. You want to say this 98. Is the foreigner, isn't it? It's the foreigner. The foreigner. And this is 2017. 2017. This movie, there's only one other bad thing about this movie. Okay. I kind of want to see it. I think I'm in. <laughs> I'm sorry. What are the other bad things about it? <laughs> okay. Well, you look, <laughs> you're not you a big Brosnan and Chan if fan? You're, if you're excited with me, then good. It opens okay. October 13. It is The Foreigner. I think you were sold at the title, weren't you? Yeah. That was enough. Exactly. Okay. My number four fall movie question is, which sequel that nobody was asking for will we be more grateful to have received? The Foreigner. Is it? <laughs> what's what's the original material, Josh? Now I got to do my homework. <laughs> will it be Blade Runner 2049 or... Will it be last flag flying? Now, I'm not going to spend any time at all on Blade Runner 2049. Enough has probably already been said and written. And I will admit that you can nitpick the question for two reasons. One of them is the Blade Runner sequel probably has been clamored for since the first one came out in 1982. But I don't recall there being a huge push in recent years to get one made. It caught me completely by surprise when they announced Blade Runner 2049. I think the surprise was part of the hype surrounding it. And despite that, it wasn't as surprising as learning that Richard Linklater has directed a sequel to 1973's The Last Detail, the movie starring Jack Nicholson and Otis Young and their Navy officers. They're not really officers, I guess. They're in the Navy, and they are sent away to escort a really young, immature sailor played by Randy Quaid, who is being sent off to prison for eight years because he stole 40 bucks from a collection box of his commanding officer's wife's favorite charity. And they decide to show him a good time with his last bit of freedom. It's a great Hal Ashby movie, and one of the all-time great, and there are many of them, Jack Nicholson performances. And Richard Linklater is now making this film. It comes out November 3rd, and it's going to debut at the New York Film Festival at the end of September. And depending on what article you read, they say it's a sequel. They call it a sequel because ostensibly, you've got Lawrence Fishburne in this new one playing the Otis Young part. You've got Steve Carell playing the Randy Quaid part. And Brian Cranston is playing the Nicholson role. Hmm. But it's set in 2003, not obviously back in the 70s. And it turns out now what they're doing is they are traveling to Iraq to recover the body of a soldier who was killed in combat. And it's actually based on a novel written by the same guy who wrote The Last Detail. He wrote the novel in 2005. So I'm thinking, how is this a sequel? Is Brian Cranston actually playing badass Badusky, one of the best character names in movie history. And then I read more about it, Josh, and it seems that, no, maybe he's not actually doing that. They're playing variations on those characters with completely different names. And I don't know how much it's actually going to harken back. So maybe what it is, here's where Chris Klemek is going to have to write in our resident expert on what's a reboot and what's a sequel and all those things we don't care about. Maybe this is kind of like Linklater's Everybody Wants Some. It's a spiritual sequel to The Last Detail. I don't know. But talk about not asking for it. No one even knew it was being made. And yet it's almost upon us. And Because it's Linklater and because it's the last detail and because I don't even know what to call it, I can't wait to see it. Just use my safe word, reheat. (laughs) 
It's a reheat. reheat. Yeah, that applies to them all. Okay. My number three, can Yorgos Lanthimos go back to back on my year-end top 10 list? I thought after we got screwed with the lobster appearing on preview after preview list that we would just say Yorgos Lanthimos Well, this is, is what happens. It's like when Jeff Nichols suddenly Disqualified. two films in one year. It, it catches up with these guys when a film is delayed. So yeah, the lobster, we waited forever. It paid off. And it paid off. Yeah, it doesn't always work that way. So that was, you know, a delight and a relief. Number three on my top 10 list last year. And now Lanthimos is back again with Colin Farrell with the killing of a sacred deer. Uh, here Farrell plays a surgeon who takes a troubled kid under his wing. Things get complicated, probably in the deeply disturbing way that they only can in a Yorgos Lanthimos film. The cast also includes Nicole Kidman and Alicia Silverstone. And I think playing the kid in question is Barry Kogan, who was really good as the mushy-faced kid who sneaks aboard Mark Rylance's boat in Dunkirk. Hmm. So he I is thought really he good. made quite an impression yes. in a short number of scenes there. And Mushy so, face. Not really a compliment, but accurate. Oh, I mean, that's a face. <laughs> it Great is. face. It is. Wonderful movie face. So, And a good actor, too. So I'm looking forward to that cast. I'm looking forward to more Lanthimos. The Killing of a yeah. Sacred Deer opens November 3. It's got a date. This one will come out. We hope. You never know with Lanthimos, but I can't wait. Okay, my number three. Will the disaster artist teach me how to stop worrying and love bad movies? So this is a little bit of a cheat, Josh, but don't hold it against me. I didn't know it was a cheat until it was too late. I'd taken all my notes, and then I look up the date, and it comes out December 1st. So a little bit after our cutoff, I'm sticking with the Disaster Artist. We were know. going up to Thanksgiving. It's based on the You're book You're going to have to do this in 20 seconds as punishment. No, I can't do it. I got too much good stuff about the room. <laughs> You've got a book in front of you. Precisely. It's not my good stuff. I'm just going to read it on air. But it's based on the book by one of the actors in... The Room, The Disaster Artist, is the making of the infamous movie, The Room, which came out in 2003. Greg Sestero plays Mark in the film, part of the love triangle with the director and writer of that film, Tommy Wiseau. He's played here in this movie by Dave Franco, Dave's brother, and Dave's a really good actor. His brother is James Franco, who's playing Wiseau. And one of the other questions I considered was, will Tommy Wiseau be James Franco's most enigmatic and engaging weirdo since Alien in Spring Breakers? I love that performance. And top. it's going to be hard to top, but Wiseau is that much of a weird character. And so far, just based on that little teaser trailer they've put out, which really is just a scene from the movie, them shooting a scene from The Room. Seth Rogen's in it. Ready? And... Action! What a line. What a line. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Okay. Action! What is line? It's really, really funny, and you see all of that weirdness come through. But as you know, I'm always up for a movie about the process of making a movie, even a so-called terrible one. And I said it last week on the podcast when we were giving a shout-out to a longtime listener, Rob Hill, who wrote a book called The Bad Movie Bible. And I said, I'm not typically a fan of so bad they're good movies. People sometimes say you should do that top five. I couldn't come up with five for that list. I just don't enjoy the goof of laughing at a movie Usually. Maybe if I was having a communal experience, like when they showed the room at the music box, that's something I've always wanted to do, but I haven't. So just watching it at home or watching it by myself isn't something that really excites me. But after reading Rob's 
comments on the room in his Bad Movie Bible, and the room is the movie that's on the cover of the Bad Movie Bible. I wonder if another question surrounding this film should be, will it actually provoke re-evaluations of The Room. So I'm going to read a little bit here from what Rob has to say about it. The Room is lumped into the So Bad It's Good category for superficial reasons. As I said in the intro, cinema has a language, and when a movie seems to be speaking it phonetically or getting it wrong, we call it bad. The Room gets the language very wrong, absurdly wrong at times, but there are endless articles, reviews, and interviews which focus on that. I want to talk about what works. Seriously. As research for this book intensified, every day I found myself watching about a half dozen of the worst movies ever made. After a couple months of this, I revisited the room and was shocked by how effective I found it. It was still funny, of course, but with my emotions unconscious due to neglect, the room suddenly woke them up and put them to use. I realized the reason was simple. I cared about Johnny. Not in an ironic or patronizing way, I just cared about him. This is the truth at the heart of the room's appeal, a truth it's taken me years to recognize. There's enough humanity and vulnerability in Johnny to make us engage on an emotional level. How dare you talk to me like that? You should tell me everything. I can't talk right now. Why, Lisa? Why, Lisa? Please talk to me, please. You're part of my life. You are everything. I could not go on without you, Lisa. You're scaring me. You are lying. I never hit you. You are tearing me apart, Lisa. Why are you so hysterical? So, I have not seen The Room since, I don't know, it's been seven years or so here on the show that Maddie and I watched it as part of an After Hours as a listener's choice. I knew that I felt like I always needed to see it to be part of the conversation a little bit. Now, he has an interview. Rob has an interview with Wiseau in the book. He caught up with him before a screening near Rob in England. And according to Wiseau, though he says James Franco did a pretty good job overall, he's a special guy. He said he approves of only about 40% of Greg's book. So I don't know how much of that translates to the movie and how much he actually will sign off on, but I can't wait to see the movie. And you know what? I might just have to go back and see if anything with The Room connects with me on a deeper level. Well, I'm going to, I've never seen The Room and apparently. The way to prepare is to watch about 50 bad there. movies first. There you go. Yeah. And I'll be ready. That's okay. all you got to do to be in the right mindset to fully appreciate it. What about your number two? My number two comes via a listener, a response on Twitter from Brandon O'Connell. He asked, who will have the strongest directorial debut? And he listed three names. Paul Dano with Wildlife. This is a marriage drama with Jake Gyllenhaal and Carrie Mulligan. Brie Larson, who has Unicorn Store. The description on IMDb, a woman named Kit receives a mysterious invitation that would fulfill her childhood dreams. Larson stars in Unicorn Store alongside Samuel L. Jackson and Joan Cusack. The other selection Brandon made was Aaron Sorkin and Molly's Game. This has Jessica Chastain as a real-life Olympic skier who went on to organize an exclusive world-class poker ring. I'm going to add a fourth here to Brandon's list, and that is Greta Gerwig, who has Lady Bird coming out. This is with Saoirse Ronan as a rebellious student at a Catholic high school. I want to throw Lady Bird in there, especially because... To me, this one has the best shot. I yeah, me too. I think that Gerwig, you know, at this point, she seems pretty capable of anything. I like that she hasn't put herself in the film and seems like the sort of story she might have a handle on. I don't know. I think that might have the best shot. Not all of those, I will say, have set release dates for the end of the year, but Lady Bird is coming out on November 10. The movie Molly's Game Every time I see it and read maybe one sentence of the plot description, I want to dismiss it and say that I don't care. And then I read the rest of the plot description, and it's just so bizarre and twisted. And 
I am a fan enough of Aaron Sorkin's work as a writer that, yeah, I actually really want to see that movie. Yeah, and for me, Chastain, too, in a part like that, uh, seems like it could be pretty promising. Mm -hmm. So I think all of these look intriguing. But yeah, for me, Lady Bird might be the way to go. I'm with you there. My number two fall movie question is, will Spettacolo be my favorite movie of all time, my favorite movie of 2017, or this year's The Wolf Pack? Now, astute listeners will think that sounds familiar. It should, because it's a throwback to last year's fall movie preview, where I asked, will Camera Person be my favorite movie of all time, merely my favorite movie of 2016, or this year's The Wolf Pack? The Wolf Pack was that documentary that came out a couple years back. It was a Sundance movie that I thought, there's no way this isn't going to be among my top 10 of the year because it's about these six brothers growing up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan who are kind of locked in their apartment by their dad mm -hmm. and don't experience the outside world except through movies. So I was all in based on that. And then the movie came out and I saw it and it was okay. It's, yeah, it's yeah. interesting, little thin. Right, it is. So it didn't end up paying off for me. And then Camera Person came out last year. You had it, I think, in your top 10. Didn't quite make yes. it for me. So not my favorite film of all time or my favorite of 2016, but it was a movie I quite enjoyed. And all of this is going back to that love I have for movies that are not just about movies sometimes, but movies that are about the intersection of art and reality. People individually and collectively creating narratives. And I'm fascinated as well by people using art in a therapeutic way, or I'm not sure I quite like how loaded that word is, maybe just in a constructive way as a way to process something. It doesn't have to be a deep-seated trauma, though it certainly could be. And that applies to the work of the director of this film. One of the co-directors, Spetacolo, is made by Jeff Malmberg and Chris Schellen. Malmberg's doc debut was Marwin Call in 2010 great documentary from that year, which was about a man who was left brain damaged after he was attacked. I think he, if I remember the movie correctly, was just attacked like outside a bar. It was kind of a random thing and was left brain damaged. And for him, his recovery was making a town, a model town, basically one sixth the scale of a World War II era town. It's all in his backyard. It's remarkable. So the movie is pretty remarkable. You may recall that Charlie Siskel, the director of American Anarchist, another good documentary from this year, back in April on the show, he had Marwin Call among his top five most influential documentaries of all time. He loves it that much. So following that, we have a movie that comes from the Italian word for spectacle or performance or play. And here's the description. Once upon a time, there was a tiny hill town in Tuscany that found a remarkable way to confront their issues. They turn their lives into a play. Spettacolo is a portrait of this 50-year-old tradition where the piazza becomes their stage and every villager from 6 to 90 plays a part, the role of themselves. I am so all in on Spettacolo. It comes out in New York on September 6th, so it's coming up. And then over the next few months, it's rolling out to nine other cities, including Columbus, Ohio, and Seattle. It doesn't have a Chicago date just yet. I am planning to get in touch with the distributor and see if they can do something about that, even if it's just for an audience of one or two here. I can't wait to see it. I will link to the screenings list on their website, on our website, in our show notes at filmspotting.net. Yeah, I saw that on the list, too. It looked like a really strong one. All right, number one, here's where we finally get to Thor. Which director has a better chance at managing a massive science fiction property while also staying true to their individual sensibility? Yes, Taika Waititi for Thor, Ragnarok, or Denis Villeneuve for Blade Runner hmm. 2049. So this is a variation on a question I got from Mark Provence on Twitter. He asked, can fresh directors take on established sci-fi properties with their unique visions intact? 
I wanted to force a choice here and see before we've seen either of these movies, if we have an instinct of which one we think might turn out a little bit, I don't want to say better, but have their maker stamp on them Mm -hmm. a little bit more. I think both will do fine. I've seen the Blade Runner trailer countless times, both trailers just in front of other movies. So I have a pretty good sense of the visual style of that. And and I think that Villeneuve will probably do fine. I've seen less of Thor Ragnarok, but the more I think about it, I think Waititi has the better chance of holding on to his stamp. For one thing, he has a more unique stamp. Uh, I think Villeneuve, he's already worked in service of a variety of different projects Mm -hmm. and you can absolutely trace different touches that speak to him. Um, But, you know, Waititi is, is a little more distinctive. And also, I think that Chris Hemsworth's affinity for comedy as Thor should make this a good fit. He's not going to really be forcing something as much as you might think when you hear Taika Waititi and Marvel movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, I'm looking forward to both of these. I'm really excited about Waititi getting a shot at a Marvel movie. Blade Runner 2049 opens October 6th. Thor Ragnarok is November 3. Well, it's because of Waititi, honestly, that I really even care at all about Thor, which it sounds sure. like we're now going back to Ragnarok. You changed know. it. <laughs> I'm going to change it every time I say it. Okay, fair enough. We'll see if we can get it figured <laughs> out by the time we actually discuss the movie. But I do tend to see these Marvel films, but I did not see. The only one of the MCU movies I haven't seen is the second Thor movie because okay. I was I like Hemsworth. I do, but I was overall mixed on the first one and the second one just didn't sound very good and i never bothered to see it so yeah love the first one eh, second one wasn't quite as strong do you have an instinct for which of these will i'm be with more you. true to their yeah? i think you articulated it well and better than i would have but that's what i was thinking when you posed the question that okay. i think his style what makes him waititi is probably a little bit more distinctive so it'll be easier hopefully to mm-hmm. recognize if it is there i I'm looking forward to both films. Okay, my number one is another listener question. I started with one at number five. I figure I should bookend this. And it's maybe my favorite listener question of all time because it's patently absurd. Like most of these questions are, it really just absolutely cannot be answered at all. But the stakes for it are so high, Josh. And you know how I feel about stakes. I do. Aaron McDowell of the fall 2017 releases which will eventually make the film spotting pantheon, and if none, why? Wait, so the film wait, spotting the pantheon. Half, that's like an essay. That, that's like we're taking. Oh a yeah, test I, now. I really, I'm not going there. But also, I have an answer, or I'm going to, I'm going to try okay. to give an answer because there is one movie that did immediately come to mind, and I love it because it makes you think about what the pantheon movies are all about. Mm-hmm. And this is our list of about forty movies that we've set aside that. Almost all of them you could describe as classics. Most of them are beloved films. There aren't any huge surprises. There's a couple surprises. But for the most part, they're the Citizen Kanes and 2001s. And there's a few Spielbergs and Kubricks on there. But movies that we feel a real personal attachment to in addition to appreciating the craft of those movies. In a nutshell, that's the Pantheon. And we love them so much we've set them aside and said, you know what, they're not eligible for top five list like this because one. that was the problem they kept coming up on top five lists, exactly so, or we yes. could envision them coming up again and again so the obvious answer i mean i should just end this right now it's obviously flatliners <laughs> i mean 
It's clearly going to be Flatliners. I had to sit through that trailer, too. Yeah, I've seen it, goes, it like three times. Adam, it goes bad for him. What? I know you think. I, but, I know you think for a but while. But I'm sure they had such be, noble, pure intentions. This is going to be really good. Oh, Sorry. Okay. Sorry to spoil it. Well, now I don't need to see Flatliners, but my real answer is a movie being released by the venerable A24. It screened at Cannes in the director's Fortnite this past year in 2017 to good reviews, very good reviews. And the director was the 2015 Golden Brick winner for Tangerine, Sean Baker. Hmm. The movie is The Florida Project. Intriguing. It's a film. This is the brief plot synopsis set during the summer. Mooney, a precocious six-year-old girl, lives with her mother, Haley, in a community of extended-stay motel guests in pastel-streaked Orlando. So this apparently is a real thing. He's capturing a little bit of real life here in this fictional narrative where they're right by Disney World. It's sort of the mecca of of American consumerism and American fantasy. And people go near that place and they end up setting up shop and staying there. And they stay there for a long time. Now, that's about all I know about the film. I did watch most of the trailer today. So, I didn't want, so now you're breaking what? up Don't trailers like that. and installments. I, I just didn't want to spoil any more of the movie. You know how I feel about <laughs> trailers, but I wanted to get a sense of this movie if I was okay. going to talk about it. All right. And Variety did an article about this film, specifically talking about it in terms of being a movie that could contend for some Oscars because... Really? Yeah, people are making some probably superficial, but they're there. They're on the surface comparisons to Moonlight in terms of the subject matter Uh, and probably some of the style too. And the Variety article says, Willem Dafoe is sure to be an Oscar story this year as a kind-hearted motel manager. Willem Dafoe, kind-hearted motel manager. He can do that. Well, of course he can. He's a brilliant actor, but we don't get to see him flex that muscle very often. But Baker, we talked about this so much with Tangerine, such a keen visual eye, amazing use of color, not shooting on an iPhone here, shot on 35mm film. That sense of color and that eye, it all comes through in 90 seconds of a trailer. It comes through in nine seconds of the trailer. Another movie about people kind of on the fringe that movies aren't usually made about. And it's interesting watching the trailer and seeing the girl, six-year-old girl played by Brooklyn Prince is the actress. I think she's a newcomer. And kind of like Cindy and Alexandra in Tangerine, she's a bit of a hustler. She kind of knows all the the rules she can break along the motel and knows how to really interact and deal with the people to get what she wants. But it's certainly a movie, at least from what I saw of the trailer, that doesn't have the edge Tangerine does. It should be more accessible in terms of its language and the sexual situations. If you watch it, Josh, I'm telling you, it seems downright sweet and wholesome, Hmm. which you wouldn't necessarily expect from the guy who made Tangerine, a movie about two transsexual prostitutes. But if you really do think about that movie and some of the aspects of it that we both really loved and appreciated, when I think about it, I think most about the tenderness of it. And so moments between them. Exactly. So I'm not shocked that this movie might be sweet and wholesome. I'm fine with that. I'm also fine and expecting, frankly, that we're going to see it and discover that Baker is cooking something up that's just a little bit more sour as well. And as I said, there's talk about it maybe being this year's Moonlight. I hope that doesn't become too much of a burden for the film. The better question might be, could Sean Baker become the first Golden Brick winner to win Best Picture and or Best Director? And maybe, just maybe, future pantheon status would be even better than an Oscar. I just have such faith in him as a director, as a writer, co-writer here with Chris Burgach is, I believe his name. They also collaborated on Tangerine. And I just think about it as a film that 
I know is going to be impeccably crafted and yet I think is going to say something substantial and is also going to move me. Just what I basically want from a film that I'm going to remember that's going to linger with me. Of all the movies I saw that are coming out this fall, and I'm sure I missed some, and I saw some great ones. There are a lot of ones I can't wait to see. We've touched on most of them, but this is the one that I think I'm probably most excited about and think might have the greatest shot of being a film I really, truly love. Hey, I'll be rooting for it to get Pantheon status. Uh, Tangerine, top 10 film for me, Mm -hmm. so absolutely Baker is someone we've been... From the moment we saw Tangerine, that's why we included it as a Golden Brick winner. What is this guy going to do next? Mm -hmm. Here it is. Here it is indeed. And those were our top five fall movie questions previewing the next few months of the cinematic year. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments you have about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, I don't know if you have a few honorable mentions. Uh, Yeah, I did. I I was kind of shocked to see that a movie like Downsizing even exists. Did you look into this? Matt Damon. Alexander Payne. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, directed by Alexander Payne. Apparently that's what's happening here. A little surprised by that. And I'm also curious about Woodshock and if this might be another fashion to cinema success along the lines of Tom Ford's A Single Man. This is about a woman played by Kirsten Dunst who falls, this is the description, falls Mm -hmm. deeper into paranoia after taking a deadly drug. The interesting thing here, I'm a fan of Dunst, but also that the directors, pair of sisters, Kate and Laura Malevi, they previously worked as fashion designers. So no other directing credits. So we'll see where that goes. Okay. Well, yeah, I didn't have any other great questions, but other movies I certainly considered and am excited to see our dear Agnes Varda still alive in her 80s, if I'm remembering correctly, has another movie coming out October 6th, Faces, Places. We did our recent marathon on her. I'm curious about Stronger coming out September 22nd. If you just read the plot description, a victim of the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013 helps the police track down the killers while struggling to recover from devastating trauma. Seems like something Mark Wahlberg might make that I don't really care about, though the trauma part suggests it might go a little bit deeper and darker. And then you see that it's got Jake Gyllenhaal in it. Mm -hmm. Loved him in Nightcrawler. He's really (laughs) investing himself in his part choices these days and disappearing into a lot of these characters. And then it's directed by David Gordon Green. Right. So interesting combination there of actor and director and material. Of course, I can't wait to see Todd Haynes and his movie October 20th, Wonderstruck, Julianne Moore, Michelle Williams, and both of them, but especially Williams these days is one of my favorite actresses to see on screen. I can't wait to see The Square, Ruben Oslin, that was on your preview of the entire year back in January, and The Killing of a Sacred Deer, of course, from Lanthimos. And finally, a movie that has not come up yet that I have to admit there's a part of me that really wants to see it, even though there's nothing really on the surface about it that would draw me to it. Murder on the Orient Express. Have you seen the trailer? Branagh's version of Murder on the Orient Express. It comes out November 10th. I have not seen the trailer. Okay. And I love Kenneth Branagh overall. I love him as an actor and doing Shakespeare and Henry V and all that. But as a director, I mean, he made the first Thor movie, didn't he? He did, which is really good. Which again, you like a lot more than I do. You like a lot more than I do. Shakespearean, Adam. Okay. Yes, Anthony Hopkins is in it. And hey, hey. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> but if, if you're going to concede that Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is Shakespearean, why can't Thor be no, Shakespearean? It can be. Okay. So, but Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah. For some reason, I feel it's going to be huge, like huge hit. It could be. And I think that's, that's what's drawing me to it a little bit. One, my question would have been which member of the ensemble is going to steal the show? Pfeiffer, Johnny Depp, Daisy Ridley, Kenneth Branagh stars as well. Marwan Kenzari, who I don't know, so. 
That's intriguing. Penelope Cruz, Josh Gad, Willem Dafoe, Dame Judi Dench, and then another unknown to me, at least by name, Tom Bateman. So with that cast, some big names, some big performers there. Which one are we going to come away really thinking was the most important, the most essential, or I guess at least just gave the juiciest performance? I'll say right now it's not going to be Johnny Depp, but anyone else, I am intrigued. And I think part of it too, Josh, is there are times where I do just want to see quote-unquote mindless entertainment. I don't want to necessarily see on a Friday night or a Saturday night, the killing of a sacred deer. I got to save that up for Monday night or Tuesday night. I got to, no, I, I got to gird mean. myself that, for those why, movies as much as I love them. That's why I do wonder if it'll be a huge hit. I think a lot of people are feeling Maybe that way. So. Um, you know, what sucks. I know who did it. I, and, and not because I saw the, the other movie and not because I read the book. So maybe, what happened? They'll, maybe they'll change this. You just studied the trailer so closely. No, Debbie's sitting next to me and she's what? like, oh, this is. She, she spoiled re- it? She read the book. Totally. Your wife spoiled it for you from totally. the trailer. From the tra- I, That was completely unnecessary. Debbie is not allowed to go to movies anymore, Josh. <laughs> nope. Did you tell her that? Yes. Oh, man. That's that's a bummer. I'm bummed for you. I definitely don't want to know. Haven't read the material. Haven't seen the other version. All right. So, I'll tell you. Those are our top five fall movie questions, and that is our show. At filmspotting.net is where you can find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. While you're there, please do vote in the current film spotting poll, even though it's kind of a bloodbath, an 82 deathmatch, E.T. versus Blade Runner. Save E.T. Save E.T. <laughs> you're going to put it on the water tower like Ferris Bueller? Yes. If you haven't already, check out the film spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. Find both in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Out in wide release, Birth of the Dragon. This is another Bruce Lee biopic. It's set during his 1960s rise in San Francisco's Chinatown. And, oh, I, I can't do this, Josh. You know I'm going to butcher it. It's got an exclamation point in it. You, you have to take it. Leap. Well done. Set in Paris, an orphan dreams of becoming a ballerina. Leap. <laughs> Limited. Marjorie Prime is out in select cities. A service that provides holographic recreations of deceased loved ones. Wait a second. This is a Yorgos Lanthimos film. It allows a man to come face to face with the younger version of his late father-in-law, John Hamm, Gina Davis, and Tim Robbins star, directed by, actually, Michael Almereda, who gave us the Hamlet with Ethan Hawke, among other films. And Terminator 2, Judgment Day 3D is out. Just might have to make it to the theater for that. Next week on the show, we are going to dive in to Blade Runner. It's a sacred cow discussion of the 1982 Blade Runner. A little bit of homework for 2049 coming out. Is it October or November? October. October. So homework, but also a movie that seems ripe for a sacred cow. I haven't seen it since college. That was too many years ago than I would care to count on air. And I meant here, Josh, to say to our listeners which version we were definitively going to watch and discuss. And we got some great emails from listeners laying it out for us, and it made my head hurt. Yeah, so and I'm, so I'm just going to let you know I'm doing Final Cut. You are doing the Final, doing cut, Final but cut, but that's not the theatrical one that came out in 82. I know. It was between theatrical or Final Cut. So I think I have it right. The theatrical cut is the one with. No, see, I don't even know. See, I don't it's the know one either. with the voiceover or not. I don't know. I no, don't know. I'm I don't done. Think I'm not. I'm you're not done. going to talk about it. Wormhole. It should be I'm so doing, easy. And I, but you're going to do the final cut. This I'm is not like doing, the definitive the one, one. I knew I wasn't yeah. going to do was director's cut. Okay. The listeners that I've seen so far, most of them have said, "Watch the final cut." Yes. Yes. So, that's the one that Scott was the most involved in. Now, I'm not usually a purist like that. I would be happy watching the theatrical release. Usually, I like to go with that because that's the historical record. Yes. But. 
Okay. Final Cut came from the library first. I've got it in my hands. It's a nice looking Josh, Blu-ray. nothing if not a pragmatist. <laughs> it's a nice looking Blu-ray. Okay. I'm going with it. Okay. Well, you I can have do to get what, my hands on it. You can do whatever it. you want. Okay. We will also look back at that year, 1982, and share our top five films of the year. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune will be here for both the Sacred Cow discussion and the top five. Can't wait. I mean, when's the last time the three of us? It's been a while. You've done a show with him. Yep. I've done a show with him. He's been a fill-in. But I don't really think... expensive, really diva kind of filling. Yeah, but it's, it's going to you know, be you tolerated because of the talent. This is true. You know, I can't so, wait. I it's can't been wait. A long no, time. It'll be good. If you have a contribution to that top five, or I guess if you want to criticize us for not knowing more about the Blade Runner editions and all twenty-seven that apparently exist, send us an MP3 feedback at filmspotting.net or leave us a short voicemail 312-264-0744 film spotting is produced by golden joe Dassault and sam van hogren without sam and golden joe this show wouldn't go our production assistant is jeremy wellhausen thanks also to candace griffiths and the listeners of the film spotting advisory board and special thanks to everyone at wbez chicago more information is available at wbez.org and yes we are still asking for ratings or reviews on apple podcasts that's because we want to find new listeners. We always want to find new listeners. That's the best way. So please do give us a rating or a review. Our music this week, it comes from Matt Pond, PA. It's from the new album, Still Summer. You see what Sam did there? I get it. More information at mattpondpa.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. I was sure I did. Um, Here we go. I've done this before. Oh, gee, this is a really nice table. I'm <laughs> Clearly. I'm I don't sure. want to destroy the property. Like <laughs> Nice. Real nice. Like everything else around here is taped <laughs> together. Oh, my gosh. Now we're here. This napkin that's been here for five weeks. This kid's always smell like beer in here. No. We'll be fine. <laughs> Let it air out. <laughs> yeah, I'll be fine by the morning. Okay, now I've broken my wrist, though. You've got a beer. I don't. Oh, man. I, I, I did destroy my hand. Are you kidding me? Did you puncture? Yeah, probably. No. I did bruise it, though. Okay. So you, uh, I looked at your letterbox diary and you must have had big plans last weekend because you didn't see much. We, I, we did a double feature. What was the double feature? The uh, Soderbergh? Adeline and I went to Logan Lucky. Oh, okay. And coming home, I, I was giving her, well, actually on the way there, I was kind of saying, you know, here's what else this guy's done, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Um, and then afterwards was describing some more about Ocean's Eleven. She's like, oh, I'd, I'd like to see that. And I said, well, just mention that to your mom. I guarantee you she'll be up for watching it. So, of course. Why? Is that because of Pitt and Clooney or? I, I think it's just. She just likes heist movies. Combination. Uh-huh. No, actually Clooney. Yeah. She, she she did rank everyone for me. You know. Oh, Clooney I want to know that ranking. Top. Um, so, yeah. So, I mentioned it. I was like, we're watching that tonight, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, but how this will, this made me feel old. So, we're halfway through it and Addie goes. 
So which one is Brad Pitt and which one is Matt Damon? Oh, man. And this is not like a kid who lives under a rock. No. I mean, like musical theater is mainly her thing. So I get that it's not quite in her. Right. But you would think you would, a teenager would be able to identify. 2001. Exactly. She wasn't born yet. Yeah, but it's not like this is, you know, an era of stars who aren't still in movies, I guess. You're right. what's weird to me. No, you're right. So after Debbie and I recovered from that question, we pointed. <laughs> Which movie did she like better? Uh, she liked Ocean's Eleven as well. Yeah. Yeah. So. Things were pretty mellow for us. First weekend in a long time where there wasn't really anything on the agenda. That's amazing. So going back to last week after our last show, I started my Films of 82 homework. I watched Diner. And then this weekend I saw Tootsie. Good job. I'm glad I saw both films. I like both films. I definitely like Diner more. Really? Yeah, definitely like Diner more. I don't remember where I have them right now. I think Diner might be in my top 10. It's not going to make my top five Mm -hmm. or it's right around there. Tootsie, I don't know, around 15 or so. Yeah, I liked it, but I don't know. There's also something very kind of quaint and dated about it. I'm sure. There is a montage. There is a montage in that movie to the tune of Go Tootsie Go. (laughs) That's the name of the song, Josh. They sing it repeatedly. That's why it's in my top five. (laughs) Of course it is. So I saw those. Felt pretty good, good about that. And then Sunday, I ended up completely by chance having a man in black double feature because I had an open afternoon. It's only 90 minutes long playing at the theater five minutes from my house. I said, if I don't go see The Dark Tower now, because oh, <laughs> we're not going to get a screener before, of The Dark Tower. Before it gets yanked from yeah, theaters. Yeah, it's going to get yanked. We're yeah. not going to get a screener. It's not going to be up for awards consideration. I could wait till DVD, but you know what? I'm just going to go see it. And is everyone wrong? Is well, it, is it brilliant? It's No, it's not. It's not brilliant. Everyone's not wrong, but it is one of those cases where you look at the Rotten Tomatoes meter, the tomato meter. Yes, I believe that's what they call it. <laughs> the tomometer. Tomometer <laughs> I prefer, but. And you see 16% and for a second you can convince yourself that that means it's 16% good. And really all it means is just, of course, that 16% of critics recommended it. Yeah. And I don't fault any of the 84% of critics who didn't recommend it. I probably am not recommending it. I think mm-hmm. I'd be right at about two and a half stars on it. But I definitely think I probably enjoyed it more than some did. Okay. It's it's just not that bad. I mean, I listen, I say some. I'll give you I'll give you a couple in particular because listeners recommended this. They're like, "Oh, the definitive take on this movie is Matt Singer, our buddy Matt Singer and yeah. Dave Chen, our buddy Dave mm-hmm. Chen. They did like a slash film bonus, like 50 minutes just on the Dark Tower." So, I listened to that. I listened to the first 20 minutes of it anyway. So, maybe maybe it changes, but that first 20 minutes they talk about the movie like it's Plan 9 from Outer Space. Like, it's that bad. And and there's probably five times in that 20 minutes, I swear, where Matt, and I love you, Matt, says, it's just unclear if this is happening or if this is like, and I'm just going, no, no, it's not unclear, actually. None of it's unclear if anything is wrong with the film. It's that it's too clear. It's one of those films where they they clearly hacked it up, right? Okay. But instead of hacking it up and making it unintelligible, I give the editor a lot of credit they made it the most efficient film possible. It's like all plot. Any information you would need to understand the mechanics of the plot, they're all there. None of that is gone. Yeah, but that's... it's all the story. It's all the interesting stuff about the characters and the world building that's cut out. It's just the plot stuff. I remember seeing somebody say something about how it just serves you up the basic story. That's it. As it like kind of 
audience insulting or maybe worried about people who weren't familiar with the King material. And I mean, I I read the King material in 1996 or something. So I can't really say, and and I read three of the books, I think, because those were the only three out at the time. Like I've said before, there's eight or nine something now. So I barely remember it, but it's it's definitely different. They take the kid and they make him kind of the main character and the gunslinger, Idris Elba, who's very good. He's kind of a secondary character in this, which I get it. I suppose they're trying to tap into that kind of young adult crowd or something, but I guess they sacrifice a lot. It is PG-13 okay. because I asked every one of my children, <laughs> even Quinn, he's only 10, but I thought he might be into it. I doubt that it's going to push too many buttons. And they no all would go with you. They huh? all, I mean, they wouldn't even humor their old man. They were just like, <sighs> I, I read the plot description to them and they all just went, no, nah, I'm good. I'm nah. going to stay home. Well, I'd be lying if I didn't say I, I, I didn't have to promise to throw in lunch to get Adeline to go to Logan Lucky. There you go. Me. So, yeah, the, it worked. The other one then, so the man in black is the character that yeah. Matthew McConaughey plays right. in it. And then that night, we decided to have a family movie night, which we haven't had since we were on vacation. And the time before that, I can't even remember. But it came up, let's do something as a family. Okay, let's watch a movie. The only movie we could agree on as a family was The Princess Bride. Which, Not you bad. know, is Sarah's all-time favorite movie. Yeah. It's up there for Sophie. She adores it. But a couple of the the boys hadn't seen The Princess okay. Bride. So we're like, okay, let's watch The Princess Bride. And it was it was funny because then The Man in Black shows up. <laughs> the Man in Black right. in the form of Wesley, right. which I just thought was kind of funny. And of course, yes, The Princess Bride is still wonderful and still holds up. So and I saw that. that. Everyone liked it. Good. Well, you know, Holden at 15 still tried to play the like grown-up Fred Savage at the beginning, too cynical, too cool for it. Yeah. You know, too too romancy, too fantasy. But it kind you know, of, you know, but at the same time, it deflates that just enough for him, I would imagine. Yeah, it did. So it's it did. kind of. I mean, yeah. there was something to say. I mean, of course, you're you're aware of it without being able to put the the word meta on it or attach that to it. But when you see it, and it was funny watching my kids having the experience, my boys have the experience that I had when I saw it in eighth grade, where that first time that the the that wall is broken i suppose where the the story's mm-hmm. being told and then fred savage says wait wait wh- what's up with all this kissing what, yeah. you know what's going on here and then that later time when then he wants to hear more and he's he's like but it couldn't happen that way what do you mean that that's not how it goes my kids had that same i know that's exactly what they were thinking like he is articulating in that moment right, what right. they as boys are <laughs> thinking so i love that that was good i also saw uh, Columbus. We're going to talk about that on the show at some point. Maybe yes. maybe review it, but I did fit that in. And yeah, certainly I recommend to, it. So need to watch that, and I hope we can give it a review at least. Yeah. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the film spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire film spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.